0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you think about it, we're surrounded by temptation. And no wonder really consumer culture works on trying to tempt people to buy more, to have more, to experience more. And it's now got to the point where Matthew Might from the University of Alabama and Harvard Medical School believes being able to resist temptation in the modern world is akin to having a
1: superpower. I don't think it's the case that human beings have changed all that much. I mean, evolution hasn't had enough time to do that. So we're the same. I think it's the environment that has changed. I think we are just bombarded with temptation at this point. Temptations are getting so much closer. And and not just in in a physical sense, although that's true too, in the sense of almost a psychological distance, you know, uh, because your phone can bring temptations right to you from across the world.
0: Learning to cope with growing temptation and getting a grip on why otherwise well-adjusted, sensible people sometimes act in self-destructive ways. That's Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Matthew, you say that one problem with temptation is that we feel in self-control. We feel like we've got a lot of self-control often, until it's too late. Could I get you to unpack that idea for us?
1: If you let's, let's let's use a cookie for example. You're standing four feet from a cookie, and you're not eating the cookie. You go, oh, "I, I have self-control. I am not eating the cookie." However, while you're not eating the cookie, four feet from the cookie, you are burning up a precious resource. And when that precious resource drops below a certain threshold, you will eat the cookie. And that, that precious resource is effectively will energy. It's a relative of will power. And so once your will energy drops too low, you know, even though you've been successfully standing four feet from the cookie, suddenly you reach out and grab it. <music> So what's the
0: message? Well, the message is not that certain people have self-control and others don't, so much as we all have a degree of self-control, and crucially, it
1: needs to be managed. It fluctuates over time. There's things that raise your level of will energy, and there's things that deplete your level of will energy. And we really want to be mindful of what those things are, because while we may have the ability to resist the cookie in one context, or in one state of mind, you know, later on we might not. So people will be familiar with the idea of willpower. Just explain to us what you mean by will energy. There's really two separate but interrelated concepts here. So the way I define it, willpower is the ability in the moment to act against a specific urge or aversion, whereas will energy is sort of how much gas you have in the tank for overall resistance over time. And the way I see it, as you exert willpower, will energy drops, you use it up. The more you use it, the more you lose it.
0: You talk about fields of temptation, and you define three regions around every temptation.
1: Could I get you to spell those out for me? I liken it to gravitational fields from physics. It's it's almost like that cookie creates a pull on you, and I do break it down into three regions. In the center region, uh, I use a funny term called acrasia. So if you're too, if you get too close to the cookie, if you fall into it, if you will you're in what I call the zone of akrasia. And akrasia is this old term from ancient Greek philosophy where basically you're acting against your better judgment when you're in a state of akrasia. It's like, you know you're not supposed to eat the cookie, but you eat the cookie. And so the ancient Greeks loved pondering, you know, why, why we did this court sort of thing. So that's in the center. And sort of once you're there, it's it's too late. Now, right outside of that is what appears to be a zone of self-control. And so you're, you're far enough away that you still have the willpower to resist. However, if you're close enough to the object of temptation such that you are burning willpower faster than it's regenerating, then if you stay there at that distance, eventually you will succumb to it. And so what's happening is that zone of Akrasia is expanding towards you when you're in this zone. So you feel like you're in control, but if you stay there long enough, you'll lose it. Now, if you get far enough away from the object of temptation, then where your will energy is regenerating fast enough, sort of faster than that you're, you're losing it through the the willpower exerted against the temptation, then you're safe. So those are the three regions. There's, there's a zone of safety. There's this danger zone where you're too close and you're burning up this precious resource by resisting. And then there's a zone where you've gone too far and, and now you, you give in to the temptation.
0: And when you're in the danger zone, okay, you haven't given over completely, but it sometimes feels good to be near temptation, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's the way temptation works. So uh, there's a, a an inherent
1: danger there in being in that field. Exactly, it, it can feel exciting to be in the danger zone. Where you're, you're close to your object of temptation, but you're managing to resist it. The, the problem is, is you can't stay there because the longer you're there, the more will energy you burn up, the less willpower you will eventually have to exert, and then you cave.
0: So it's not enough just to try and avoid an object of temptation then?
1: To avoid it successfully, you've got to stay all the way outside that danger zone. And you can't keep dipping in and out of the danger zone because each time you go in, you're you're burning up that resource and you go in and out enough times and that resource disappears and, and now you're trapped. Now,
0: this is not just a show about temptation and willpower. Remember, it's also about being your own worst enemy. You've got a bright and constructive future ahead of you. your finger always seems to be hovering over the button marked A Thousand Ways to Self-Destruct.
2: So we know that people differ wildly in how much they avoid things that are ultimately bad for them. So some people are really good at avoiding harm, while others persist in really self-destructive behaviour, which is puzzling, but it's also a big societal issue. My name is Philip Jean-Richard de and I'm a lecturer at UNSW Psychology.
0: And UNSW being
2: the University of New South Wales. So one of the things that we've been trying to do is understand why this happens, the factors that contribute to persistent self-destructive behaviour, and what can be done to counteract these problematic patterns of behaviour. And we try to understand this from both psychological level as well as a neurobiological level. What's going on in the brain that might be biasing an individual towards making good decisions versus those that are making bad decisions?
0: And your focus has been on the link between actions and consequences, hasn't it?
2: That's right. So this is a phenomenon known as punishment learning. So whenever an action has a negative consequence, all else being equal, we should do that action less, right, to avoid that negative consequence. And this is a well-preserved, highly conserved psychological function that most animals have, including ourselves. But it seems to be a process that doesn't always happen as it should, as in there's a lot of behaviors that seem to fall through the cracks. And you know addiction, so things that mess with our brain are things that seem to bypass this function. But there's also a bunch of other things that are not substance related, behaviors that seem to persist at great cost to ourselves. And that's what our research tries to understand is, how does this process work normally and what are the conditions under which it seems to fall apart? It's a work
0: in progress. But what Dr Jean Richard Dibbrassell's experiments suggest is that the reason why some people fail over and over again to draw a simple connection between their actions and obviously bad consequences isn't because they're stupid or stubborn. It's because they have a cognitive reasoning process that's flawed. In other words, the way they rationalise negative events that happen to them
2: might be logical, but not factual. Yes, we believe that's a, a really predominant and overlooked factor in why people continue to do things that are bad for them. So, you know, we tested this in an experimental setting where, you know, we gave participants, we let them play a game where they can earn money by making actions that lead to positive or negative outcomes. And, you know, even when faced with the same situation, we found that people differ dramatically in how well they stopped making actions that lost them points. Now, The thing that we wanted to understand is why that was happening and a key finding was that the main difference between those that were avoiding bad outcomes really well versus those that weren't was differences in the beliefs that they had around their actions, not differences in their motivation or their engagement. So, their awareness of an action's consequences was actually the main factor behind good decision making and not how participants felt about the consequences themselves. And what this tells us is that cognitive factors and their awareness of their environment and how their behaviours lead to certain consequences potentially plays a bigger role than motivational factors, which was the previous assumption.
0: So, let's just summarise where we're up to. Many of us are tempted into unwise or self-destructive behaviour because there's just more stuff out there to tempt us and because the digital world is built on trying to grab people's attention. And then on top of that, as we've just heard, some people just aren't good at assessing the potential consequences of their actions. But there's also another thing at play, the human tendency toward habitual behaviour.
3: My name's Susan Hillier and I'm a professor of neuroscience and rehabilitation at the University of South Australia. So I think the first thing to talk about is that most often habits are you know, a, a good response in the way our brain organises things because there's so many things that we could pay attention to and that we'd have to pay attention to consciously. So from a neurological point of view, it's really important that we create habits because what that means is that we can do a whole lot of behaviours that don't require conscious thought. And that
0: includes simple things like always cleaning your teeth before you go to bed and remembering to pick up your child from daycare every afternoon on the way home from work. But how are habits actually formed in our brains? And is the process the same for bad habits as well as good ones?
3: It is exactly the same process. So the brain itself is quite agnostic about what's good or bad. It's how we perceive it then from our consciousness point of view. And we call this process neuroplasticity. It's the same process as for learning. So you could say a habit really is a super learning situation where we've learned something so strongly that we no longer have to think about it. So the process is that a bunch of neurons fire to create a certain movement or a certain behavior or a certain thought pattern or a certain emotion, any of these things, similar kind of wiring. And the more we practice that wiring sequence, if you like, the more entrenched a habit becomes. Now, that's very simplistic, but essentially, you know, that's the sort of brain's response to learning and creating something that then becomes an unconscious behaviour. And so whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, at that kind of cellular level, it doesn't show. It's then what we interpret from a mind point of view about whether this is a good thing for us or a bad thing for us.
0: Do we know how long it takes before an action becomes a habit?
3: It's a bit like oh, I say. People always ask me this, and I say, "Well, how long does it take you to learn to play the piano?" There's the lovely pop psychology kinds of things that it takes. Twenty-one days to make or break a habit. I think that was something that came out in the nineteen sixties. It's not as simplistic as that because it depends on the complexity of the habit. It depends on the you know the reward or the punishment aspect of the habit. You know the the positive or the negative consequence you could say, and it depends the time of day that you use the habit. It depends on All sorts of things. So there was this sort of guess that habits can take anywhere, you know, there's a a paper that came out a couple of years ago, anywhere from 18 to 254 days. So I guess that, you know, that's the short answer is it depends. And the long answer is don't give up, you know, because it can take a long time to change a behavior, unlearn something and relearn something. And that really depends on, you know, motivation to do it, how often you practice it how complex the, the behavior is the reward or the you know the negative response to it all those sorts of things
0: so it is possible to to change a, a bad habit it is possible to improve your neuroplasticity then
3: it is it is absolutely possible and really interesting studies that show that if you believe that if you understand that the brain can change you're more likely to be able to change your habit or your emotions or your behavior and it, this is not a question of faith it's a question of Having the kind of cognitive commitment to understanding that this is possible. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? That, you know, we're now talking about belief, but that is actually one of the biggest predictors of whether you'd be able to change or not. And they did a great study in the States a couple of years ago with university students and their mental health, you know, with this kind of mental health or ill health epidemic, anxiety and depression. And as a brief intervention, they simply explained to the university students, that they could change their mental outlook on life, you know, whether it was anxious or depressed or more positive. And simply knowing that they had the capacity to change their brains, improve their mental health more than sort of a, a neutral education program. So, you know, I think that's, that's actually really exciting, isn't it, to think that if we apply ourselves because we really believe that we can do it, then we can do it. What, is, what are some yeah. of the
0: other tips for breaking or making a positive habit?
3: So starting with that is the motive, the understanding, the belief and the motivation, and then really kind of unpacking what are the rewards that keep the old habit going? So how do you unlearn that? And then what are the rewards about replacing that old habit with a, a habit that's going to be better for you? So we all know the hidden reward of you know, not going for a, a walk early in the morning is that maybe you don't like getting out of bed. So you've got to manage that hidden reward of half an hour extra in bed with the new reward of feeling really fit and starting the day more positively with more vigor and energy and and those kinds of things. So it's that kind of bringing up to the surface. What do I get out of the old habit and what will I get out of the new habit? And actually practicing, and this is, sounds really funny, but practicing feeling great about the new reward. So instead of you know practicing lying in bed going, well, oh, this is yummy, you practice going, oh, I've just had a walk. God, I feel so fantastic. I feel really alive. I feel like my lungs have opened out or my mind is clearer or whatever it is. And then you actually practice experiencing the reward, the positives. And then that builds up this positive cycle of behaviour change.
0: Susan Hillier, Professor of Neuroscience and Rehabilitation at the University of South Australia. (laughs) If you were to draw up a list of bad habits, destructive behaviours, there are some that are obvious and which most of us would acknowledge, like smoking, for instance. But then again, having a fag or even a packet a day, what's now viewed as a life-shortening addiction, wasn't always seen that way in the past. So what's obvious isn't always obvious until it's obvious. One habit that's shaping up as a present and future problem is work addiction at least according to Dr Rachel Potter. And she's been part of a global study into just how destructive it can be.
4: There's no specific definition for work addiction as yet and it's not recognised as a behavioural addiction in its own right. So that's something we're trying to work towards from the research we're currently undertaking. It's currently seen as part of obsessive-compulsive disorder. So we're trying to really understand get a really clear definition of what it is and push forward to say, well, this is a big issue because research shows that using psychometric scales, it's very prevalent in society.
0: Many of us would recognise it perhaps in others, in the people that we're around in the work environment, but but maybe not in ourselves. Do you agree? Mm,
4: yeah, denial is a, a massive thing. And I think because So often we kind of camouflage behaviours of work addiction as being really motivated or dedicated and we really glorify um, overworking as a positive trait. It's really hard to identify when it's becoming detrimental or tipping over into that addictive state. So yeah, often we see the symptoms much more easily in others and it's difficult for us to kind of be aware ourselves. And um, I guess in this the global study we're doing, if you complete the survey, you do get a report to, to kind of indicate where your risk levels are for um, being addicted to work. So it gives a bit more uh, insight.
0: And that global study is looking at participants in what, 60 countries?
4: Yeah, 60 countries. It's the largest study into work addiction that's been undertaken so far, and we're getting quite good numbers in each country. In Australia, we've got over 1,000 participants, so a nice representative sample that lets us make comparisons between countries. There has been some previous research to different countries, and we've seen that the prevalence rate does fluctuate. And that allows us to think well, there are actually country level aspects that may be kind of causing these fluctuations. And that's what we want to look into more is what's going on culturally to see what influences are at play there.
0: And in terms of the working environment, is it more prevalent among those who are self employed?
4: Yes, that's a big trend in the literature so far as. Those that are self-employed are more likely to maybe have longer working hours. There's a lot of pressure to kind of to perform and to keep your business going. So these people are more at risk of experiencing work addiction. But at the same time, there's also other aspects such as age, gender, those kind of demographic variables too that also are strong predictors of experiencing work addiction.
0: I think I saw in your research that women are more prone to work addiction.
4: Yes, yes. Females scored higher on risk for uh, work addiction. And um, to be honest, not too surprised about that um, from other research that I've done personally, looking at women and in work environments we're seeing really disturbing trends around that, especially for women who obviously have the babies coming back to work and their experiences. And so I think a lot of the time Women have to work harder to catch up. And, you know, from our research, we're not saying work addiction is just an individual pressure to work. It comes from different pressures in society. So you might need to be, you know, that have those addictive qualities of checking emails, of performing just to catch up. So it's not just kind of your personality as such. There's different factors at play, I think, for women. You know, it's not very equal for work practices and that can lend itself to having that pressure to kind of work outside typical hours to try and keep on top of things.
0: And is management pressure an issue here? I mean, if you've got a boss who overworks, Mm. does that flow down to the rest of the organisation? Is there an expectation that the staff will also put in extra hours?
4: Absolutely. So this is a real critical finding is that managers... Often the kind of the linchpin that they are the the people that have a lot of work on their shoulders. They have to distribute it to others beneath them and and get you know results from their workers and outputs delivered those kinds of things. But um, we're seeing that in a workplace, the culture is really determined by senior management and management practices. So. If you have a boss who's sending emails to you after hours, there's that real strong expectation, I guess, to respond. And so that is a massive issue. I've seen in uh, my previous research where I looked at digital communication practices in universities. And we found that if you've got a manager that emails you after hours, it's a real, a real big indicator for um, experiencing work addiction and experiencing burnout and those kinds of things.
0: From your research, what are the health implications of being a workaholic and what does it do to relationships?
4: For health, so it definitely impacts sleep, especially if you're, you know, often now we're kind of tied to our digital devices, that has negative consequences on sleep, so it's very available. We can check things in the night. That disrupts our melatonin production. So, you know, there's strong consequences for health, for sleep. Uh, we, you know, neglect eating well We might not exercise; would be very sedentary. Um, In countries like Japan, they have a term "karoshi," which is death by overwork. So people actually become really malnourished and, or have you know, cardiovascular issues relating to overwork. There can be really serious consequences on your body, physically and and mentally, to do with overwork. And for families, I mean, we can see loved ones experiencing this. It can really damage families and actually cause a cycle. So if you have parents who are addicted to work, you're more likely to model that behaviour and experience that down the track. It has a huge flow on effect to families as well. And that's why we need to act on it.
0: So more work can mean more stress, and that can lead to temptation, which is where we started this particular episode of Future Tense, and also where we'll end it. Let's go back to Professor Matthew Might. Remember, he argues that the ability to avoid temptation in the modern world is akin to a superpower. He's written about what he calls hacking temptation, developing strategies to strengthen one's resolve. These include increasing distance, recognising faltering willpower, developing a workplace strategy, and finally, failure journaling. Matthew Might.
1: The idea here is that you can take some time every day to just be mindful of how well you did avoiding temptation. So think, for example, how often did you cross into the danger zone for some object? When did you finally collapse into that zone of equation where you gave in and you know, succumbed to temptation? And then think about what you were doing before that. You know, were you deliberately sort of, or maybe accidentally getting too close to that danger zone? Did you not realize you were in the danger zone? And the whole point behind journaling this is that you can learn to recognize when you're setting yourself up for failure, when you are going to end up succumbing to temptation in the future.
0: A lot of temptation these days comes through our mobile devices. How do we deal with that? How do we keep them in our lives, but also exercise a kind of balance,
1: I guess? This is one of the trickiest ones, and it's one of the ones that I've spent probably the most time on personally. There's a few strategies you can take with your digital devices of all sorts. One is what I call the work slash play strategy, where you actually have separate sets of devices for work mode and play mode. So for example, on my phone that I carry around everywhere, it's a work device. I can't do anything fun with it. I can't read the news, can't get on social media, I can't play video games. I have locked it down, so about the only thing I can do is what I'm supposed to be doing. My laptop is the same, you know, all I can do is work on the laptop. There are no games, all the social media sites are blocked, all the news sites are blocked. Anything that I have found myself succumbing to is blocked. However, I have an iPad, which sits in a different room, and that one is unlocked. It can do anything I I want on that, and I just keep my distance from it throughout the day to avoid succumbing to the temptation to browse social media, look at the news, things like that. And there's one interesting story of somebody who's taken this to real extremes, and that's George R. R. Martin, the guy who uh, came up with the Game of Thrones and the Song of Fire and Ice series. He literally works. He does his writing on an old DOS computer running WordStar 4.0. So this device doesn't even have the internet. It can only do one thing at a time. So when he's sitting at that computer, he can't go browse the internet. He can't do anything except for write. And that's, that's an example, an extreme example of this work-slash-play strategy and practice.
0: And being aware of how much willpower we have and what our reserves of will energy, as you call it, are, that surely must also be important.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to try to be able to get a measure of how much you have. I think you know, we, we all have this sense, like we come home from a hard day at work and you just feel exhausted. And that's when you raid the cupboard, you pull out the ice cream, you know, things like that. That's when you start doing those sorts of things. You're less likely to do those things in the morning, you know, when you're fresh, when you're ready, ready for the day, and you have higher levels of motivation. So I think you, you can develop an internal sense of how much of this resource you have left. You know, I, I think temptation is here to stay. In fact, is, if anything, it's probably gonna get worse. And I think there's some big factors that are stacked against us in this regard. So it's, it's clearly the case that you know, our attention has value. Yeah, so social media companies in particular have noticed how valuable our attention is. I mean, they can literally convert our attention into money. And so we're trapped in this arms race against them where they are building ever better apps for sucking away our temptation, for tempting us to come back. And you know, they're just one example, you know, of, of companies that are trying to get ever better at tempting us. And so I think just being mindful of that fact that our attention has value, and as a result, there's large incentives to create these temptations in our environment will allow us to better design that environment to resist them.
3: There's a general sense that we are exposed to more behavior that is potentially addictive and it's been quite easy to point the blame at marketers and technology and so on. And to a point that is true because they are about grabbing people's attention and creating a behavior around a certain product. So yeah again, your listeners need to challenge themselves and then say, okay, well, I've clearly got a habit here. You know, is it actually serving me well? And what would it take for me to not do that? Put the phone outside of my bedroom. Those, you know, really obvious things. So are we exposed to more potentially negative habit formations, I think the answer's
0: yes. Susan Hillier, Professor Susan Hillier, a neuroscientist with the University of South Australia. Before her, Matthew Might, the Director of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And he also lectures at Harvard Medical School. Our other guests were work addiction researcher, Dr Rachel Potter and Dr Philip John Richard de a biological psychologist at the University of New South Wales. And just a final point on our topic today. Remember, it's important to keep in mind that not all habits are bad for you. For instance, developing an addiction to future tense and habitually wanting to share it with your colleagues and friends, well, that could only be a good thing. My co-creator and co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.